Well, thank you very much, uh, Paul and Charlie, for arranging this. And I'm, I'm honored and deeply privileged to be able to be here with pastors and pastors' wives. Uh, you are critical to the survival of any culture in any age in any continent on earth. And I, I just admire what you do, and I would encourage you to stay at it and uh, uh, just depend on the power of the Holy Spirit for, for all of what you're doing. So thank you very much for coming and giving me a little bit of your time today. I hope that I will use it well. Um, <clears throat> Paul just mentioned the, the social justice, uh, uh, woke, critical race theory, uh, you know, uh, all, of, all of that stuff tied together, um, uh, identity politics and so on. And so this is not the topic of this talk, but it is one talk that I will be giving during my, my almost three weeks here in Oklahoma. But I did want to just bring your attention to this booklet, Social Justice Versus Biblical Justice, How Good Intentions Undermine Justice and Gospel, uh, because we do have copies of it back here. And this has been uh, a passion of mine since the mid-1980s. Uh, I first really wrote about it in my master's thesis in economic ethics and then in my book, Prosperity and Poverty, The Compassionate Use of Resources in a World of Scarcity, which uh, unfortunately the, the copies of that haven't arrived here. It just came off the press, a, a reprint of it just came off the press. They should be here in another few days, and so they'll be with me at other places. Um, but um, Paul, Paul used the uh, – <laughs> said – there's just justice, and instantly my ears perked because that's actually the title or part of the title of a book that I, I'm working on writing right now. I haven't put any, any you know, fingers to the keyboard on it yet, but it's boiling around in my head. Uh, some of you may have heard of Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice. And Tim Keller, of course, is pastor of Redeemer Church in New York City. And I thank God for the many, many people who have come to faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ through his preaching of the gospel. I think that's for real. But in another of his books, and I've forgotten now which one, but in the foreword to one of his other books, Keller actually mentions how he was heavily influenced by the Frankfurt School of the neo-Marxist, cultural Marxist movement that shows itself very clearly in his book, Generous Justice. And so what I want to title my book is Just Justice, Generous Love. Finding a path to shalom for a fractured and sinful culture uh, and, or sinful world. Uh, because really, generous justice is a contradiction in terms. It is an oxymoron. Justice, by definition, is to be impartial, absolutely impartial. And it is to render to everyone what is due. Generosity gives benefits where they are not due. And indeed, to go beyond generosity, we go to grace, and that gives benefits where what is due is harm. What is due is punishment. And unfortunately, the whole social justice movement including, sad to say, Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, confuses justice and grace. And when you do that, you will corrupt the gospel. Because the gospel does include both justice and grace. It says that by God's justice, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. That's justice. And it says, but the gift, the charis, the grace of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Confuse justice and grace and you will ultimately destroy the gospel. That's actually part of what destroyed the gospel in the medieval Roman Catholic Church. And it had to be restored in the Reformation. So uh, now I'm, as usual, I'm running over on, on things that weren't planned to do as part of my talk. Oh, well. Now, <clears throat> Charlie also asked me to make reference to this. Just asked me a few minutes ago to do this. This is called The Ten Commandments. Strange title, right? And it is, uh, it's 22 lectures 
uh, that can either be seen in 22 separate times or they can be grouped into 13 times. So you've either got a Sunday school quarter or you have a whole Sunday school semester, right? Or a private school semester, a homeschool semester, family worship, whatever, uh, individual time. This is lectures through the Ten Commandments describing what they require of us, what they forbid of us, how they all point us toward Jesus Christ for our salvation, and uh, how they shape our understanding of human interaction and the shaping of society. Uh, There is a free online uh, PDF study guide that you can use as you go through this. And if you do, you will have the equivalent of a full seminary-level course in biblical ethics, which I used to teach at Knox Theological Seminary when I was there under Dr. D. D. James Kennedy uh, while he was still living. So um, this, I believe, you know, America is in desperate need of revival. And revival will not come until there is conviction of sin. And the Holy Spirit uses the law of God to convict us of our sin and then to drive us to the foot of the cross for our, our forgiveness. And then he uses the law to instruct us in how to live. So um, I've many times thought this may be the most important thing I've ever produced in my life. So we have copies of this back there. Last but not least, and here is something that we do not have copies of back there, but Charlie also asked me, to recommend this book to you, Live Not by Lies, a Manual for Christian Dissidents. This is by Rod Dreyer. This book should be read and mastered by every Christian in America. That's not going to happen. It should be read and mastered by every pastor in America who then needs to pass its lessons on to every congregant. That's not going to happen either. But you're here, and I am telling you, this is a book you must not miss. Rod Dreyer bases this book on hundreds of interviews he did with Christians in countries that used to be part of the Soviet communist bloc. How they lived under what Rod calls hard totalitarianism. And in hard totalitarianism, they use pain to keep you down, to force you to conform to what they desire, right? Dreyer tells us we are facing in America not hard totalitarianism, but rather what he calls soft totalitarianism. It's kind of like the difference between the book 1984, where they use pain to enforce conformity, and the book Brave New World, where they use pleasure, drugs, and sex. As long as you... As long as you conform, you get all the drugs and sex you want. And when you step out of line, you're forbidden some of that. So they use pleasure. Well, under soft totalitarian, we're being told, well, as long as you toe the line on the LGBTQ plus, 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 plus agenda, you can keep your job. You can keep your Facebook account. You can keep your Twitter account. As long as you comply on climate alarmism, as long as you comply on homosexual so-called marriage, as long as you comply on all the different aspects of the whole uh, woke progressivist agenda, you can keep all these pleasures. But there is coming a time when you won't be able to even do most of your, your commerce, go and buy things at stores, go to restaurants and so on, unless you comply. And it's, that's not, it's not putting a gun to your head. It's not, you know, flogging you with a whip. That's not pain. It's the, the removal of pleasure. And we Christians need to be ready for this. And we need to know how to live under this. And Dreyer's book is absolutely brilliant in helping to do that. So I would just very much encourage you to get and read that book as soon as you can. And I will give you one more encouragement about that. Um, and I'm, I'm going to need to try to conform my life to this. Up to now, I've not done this very much, but don't buy it through Amazon. Buy it at a local bookstore. 
Charlie is working out with a, a bookstore here in Colorado, here in Oklahoma, to buy a bunch of copies of this to resell, and, and I hope that she'll do it that way. All right, so enough for the preliminaries. Uh, let me just for a moment pray and ask for the Lord to use the remainder of this time fruitfully. Heavenly Father, you know that uh, I desire to be of use here. I, I pray that you will make the words that I say of true benefit to these brothers and sisters and uh, help them, I pray, to take what they learn here and to learn much more too and to use it to equip the saints for the work of every kind of ministry, uh, which is a taking captive of every thought to the obedience of Christ, a making disciples of all nations and teaching them to observe, to obey everything that you have commanded us. So, Father, as I speak on things that uh, don't typically even enter much into the minds of many, many Christians, including many pastors, I pray that this will be a helpful talk. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, title is kind of rough, Promises and Perils of Creation Care and Religious Environmentalism. You all have probably heard of creation care from time to time, and there are various creation care organizations. Um, what I would tell you is, and I'm, this is going to have to be very, very superficial th- this afternoon, uh, if you want more, I'll be showing you a variety of resources that you can get. But I can summarize things this way, that most religious environmentalists, including evangelical environmentalists, Bible believers, serious Christians, people who are in many ways very, very godly people, many of them my friends, right, take secular environmentalists' claims at face value, failing to test all things, hold fast what is good, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5. And consequently, they just believe every, every claim of environmental, ecological disaster that comes down the pike. And right away, they want to jump on the bandwagon because they think, okay, if we love our neighbors... And if we love God and want to honor him as creator by taking good care of his creation, we need to address ocean acidification. We need to address the, the great Pacific garbage, uh, garbage patch, uh, patch. We need to address uh, species extinction, the sixth great extinction, the problem of the Anthropocene age into which we've entered. And, climate change, global warming, uh, the, the great existential threat that we all face now. If we don't do that, we are not loving our neighbors. And what's happening is that we're confusing motivation with true knowledge and understanding and actually beneficial work. Richard Chevenick's Trench, some of you might be familiar with his, uh, his book, New Testament Synonyms. He was a 19th century Greek scholar. He wrote somewhere early on in that book, he said that uh, uh, hell is paved with good intentions is the queen of the Proverbs. And, uh, you know, I think that is so true. So many people figure if I've got good intentions, automatically I'm going to be doing good things. But the law of unintended consequences is always with us. And we need to distinguish carefully between good intentions and actual good policy. They, they tend uh, also to make what I would consider a superficial or faulty use of Scripture. I'll give you just two examples of many, and in some of the sources that I'll, I'll give you, you'll find many more. But they will run immediately to Genesis 2.15, which says that God put Adam in the garden to tend and keep it, or to, to cultivate and guard it. And they'll do some really, some of them will do some really interesting retranslating there so that uh, tend turns into serve and keep turns into actual worship. Uh, It's very, very strange what happens there. But more often than not, it's a simpler thing. They just say, look, see, what this means is that we're supposed to preserve, keep the garden the way it is. 
And then they equate the garden with the whole earth, completely ignoring the fact that the context tells you the geographic location of the garden and that there, most of the earth is outside the garden, that that's wilderness. And they ignore the fact that, uh, that uh, Genesis 1.28 says we're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Well, what that means is that we're not supposed to leave it the way we find it. Nature is not best untouched by human hands. No, nature does not know best. Um, that's, you know, that, that idea, nature knows best, is one of what uh, Barry Commoner called the four laws of ecology. No, nature does not know best. God knows best, and he communicates what is best to his people through his scriptures, and then we are to take what we learn from those and go out and impose it on this fallen world. So that's one example. Another example is Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord and the Lord's in the fullness thereof. Therefore, since the earth is the Lord's, we're not supposed to rule over it. And in fact, maybe we shouldn't have such a thing as private ownership of land. All the land should be held in common because it's the Lord's after all. And that completely forgets, for instance, the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, which entails that there is such a thing as private property. But it also forgets that in Psalm 115, verse 16, we read, the earth is the Lord's, I'm sorry, the heaven, even the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to men. So now, is the earth the Lord's? Of course the earth earth is the Lord's. We're the Lord's. Everything is the Lord's, right? But he's given us a subordinate ownership that we call a stewardship over this earth. So, um, and I've already touched on the, uh, the tendency to confuse good motives with, uh, with good science and economics. Now, a couple of resources for you to use for further study on this. Uh, a short booklet called Creation Stewardship, Evaluating Competing Views. Uh, in this, I have taken on a, uh, a book by probably the most influential evangelical environmentalist in the world, uh, a man named Calvin DeWitt. We share our names, Calvin. Uh, he and I are both reformed in our theology. Uh, he is a dedicated Christian man, uh, and yet I believe that he has fostered a great deal of serious misunderstanding through his many books and many, many articles and many, many uh, times of speaking at colleges and universities and churches all over the world and his founding of what's called the Osabel Institute, which now has, uh, has courses going on at most of the Christian colleges and universities all over America. So in this, I, for about the first fifth of it, I mean, it's basically a book review, but it's a, what, I think it runs about 50 pages, something like that, 50 or 60 pages as a book review. About the first, say, fifth of it, I tell the various ways in which I really agree with him. I think he's got great insights. And then I take the rest and I show where I think he's misusing Scripture, where he's misrepresenting science, things like that. So it's a short read. You can read the whole thing in an hour or so. Uh, And I think that you would find that very, very helpful in learning some of the basic principles of how to distinguish good from bad earth stewardship, right? Uh, The second one here is godly dominion versus environmentalism, uh, restoring, uh, uh, pardon me, reducing poverty, restoring liberty, and renewing human dignity by, by, uh, (laughs) by, regaining the blessings of Genesis 1.28. Okay, one word there is too small for me to read it on here right now. Uh, But this is a DVD of a lecture that I've given in quite a number of different places that is much more focused, much more concentrated than what I'm doing for you today. It's also considerably longer, and that's available on our table back there as well. This contrasts Christian biblical earth stewardship with environmentalism more broadly defined, and I'll get into a little bit of that in a moment. Uh, One other resource for you specifically about the evangelical creation care movement is an article that we have online at our website, cornwallalliance.org, called 
evangelical environmentalism bought and paid for by liberal millions. And this, of course, is free online. This is a major article that I, that I wrote originally back, I think, in 2009. I updated it in 2014. And it shows where the money comes from to support the Evangelical Environmental Network, creationcare.org, Floresta, uh, a whole bunch of different evangelical environmental organizations. And guess where their money is coming from? It's coming from Soros. It's coming from the Energy Foundation of Tom Steyer. It's coming from Tides Foundation. It's coming from Hewlett-Packard, the Hewlett Foundation, Rockefeller Brothers, all of these different organizations, all of which are lined up lock, stock, and barrel against Christianity, against the biblical understanding of humanity, of male and female, of the mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion of it, uh, over it. All of them are supporters of the population control movement. All of them are major supporters of abortion. Why do you think they're funding these evangelical organizations? No question about it they see that what these folks are saying serves their agenda. Now, I'm not telling you that these evangelicals are, you know, have simply said, oh, here's where the money's coming from, therefore that's what I'm going to say. What I'm telling you is these folks have determined what they want to say, and then the other folks say, aha, they're saying what we want, let's, let's pay for it, right? So I think we need to be careful about that. All right, um, a couple of common worldview foundational features about environmentalism, right? The vast majority of environmentalists in this world embrace a worldview that I call oneism. And I've taken that term from my friend, Dr. Peter Jones of the Truth Exchange. Uh, You'll see his uh, website listed there at the end of this particular page. Uh, Peter Jones is a uh, retired professor of New Testament studies one of the world's leading authorities on ancient Gnosticism and probably the world's leading authority on how ancient Gnosticism has uh, come back to bite us in contemporary thinking in in America and all over the world. Oneism is the idea that all reality is one. So you lose the creator distinction, the creator-creature distinction. And you ultimately lose all distinctions This is why, as I put it in an article that I wrote about 25 years ago, uh, uh, how socialism and homosexuality have the same roots. They're both denials of distinction. Socialism denies yours and mine. Homosexuality denies male and female. The whole LGBTQ movement denies that. The transgender movement denies that. So if you ask the question, is all reality fundamentally one or is it fundamentally two? If your answer is one, that sets you on a trajectory toward socialism, communism, homosexuality, transgenderism, everything else. All follows from that. That's why it's a worldview question, a presuppositional question. Also, uh, so there, there are two types of oneism, really, two categories that tend to uh, predominate in environmentalism. The one is secular humanist materialism. Matter is all that is, right? And of course, you all know that if matter is all that is, then of course there is no such thing as argument because when two molecules happen to collide with each other, they don't sit down and drink a cup of tea and say, all right, which direction are you going to go and at what, what velocity? They just exchange energy and off they go. So if your thought is nothing but the consequence of the movement of, of matter and energy in your brain, then there is no thought real, uh, really going on there. There's no, no reasoning going on. As C.S. Lewis put it in his book Miracles, uh, in the, the chapter, the, uh, the Problem of Naturalism, he said, naturalism is the argument that there is no such thing as argument. It is therefore necessarily self-refuting, Right? So um, that's, that's the one form. The other form is pantheism or sometimes panentheism. Pantheism, God is the universe. Panentheism, God is to the universe as the soul is to the body. Or spiritism. There are all sorts of little gods and spirits and they inhabit rocks and trees and streams and mountains and all these different things. And, but everything is inspirited. 
Now, one of the things that many environmentalists will say as a criticism of Christianity is that it desacralized the natural world around us. That is, it robbed the natural world of this infusion with the universal spirit, with the world soul, with, with uh, Brahman, uh, with the spirits, and so on. But that is exactly what made Christian, uh, the, the Christian understanding so different from all of those. Once we desacralized them, then instead of our being subservient to the floods or to the heat waves or to the cold snaps or to diseases, we got to be their masters. And so instead of offering a sacrifice to the river god to prevent the next flood, we learned to build dams. Instead of building a temple along the side of the river to honor the gods of the river, as the Hindus do for the, the, uh, the river Ganges, and then watching the river take that temple away, we learned to control the flow of the river. So we desacralized nature. That's actually a very good thing because it allows us then to understand nature as the creative work of God and to have the attitude toward it that the psalmist has in Psalm 19, for instance, right? The heavens declare the, the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night to night shows forth knowledge. There is no language in which this, you know, this message is not heard, right? This is brilliant. This is wonderful. God created all these things and, and because of them, we worship him. Not through them, but in response to them. But most environmentalism is either materialist or pantheist, panentheist, spiritist. Twoism answers the question, is all reality one or two? And it says it's two. It's God, the creator, and it's everything else, right? And when we deny the distinction between the creator and the creature, then we begin to worship and serve the creature and we make all sorts of other gods for ourselves. And then God gives us over to a depraved mind. Thinking ourselves to be wise, we become fools. And then we embrace all sorts of anti-nature, anti-essence things like homosexuality and so on, right? Like children rebelling against their parents. Notice, by the way, the whole list that Paul gives there in Romans chapter 1. Don't single out homosexuality and lesbianism, right? It's, there's a whole list and plenty of it applies to plenty of, of uh, believing Christians. Thank God for his grace, right? Um, but we recognize the creator-creature distinction, but there's another rec uh, distinction that we recognize too. On the one hand, there is creator and there's creature. On the other hand, within creature, there is humanity which is the only creature made in the image of God, and then there is all the rest of creation. Now, Christianity says there is a hierarchy here. God, man, the rest of creation. Environmentalism flips it. The environment is first, and it rules us. It has higher priority than us. We're next, and if God's around at all, he's third. He comes in last. That's what happens. So, um, again, uh, here are some, some common features of environmentalism. Uh, and again, just a couple here quickly. Malthusianism, how many of you have ever heard of Thomas Robert Malthus? No, okay. Thomas Robert Malthus was a Presbyterian minister and economist at the, near, in the uh, very late 18th century, early 19th century. In 1798, he published a book called An Essay on Population. And in that book, he argued that because population grows uh, geometrically or, or uh, exponentially, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, etc., right? But resources, particularly, most importantly, food supplies, grow only arithmetically, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, right? Therefore, population will always inevitably outrun the resources on which it depends and ultimately, you will have a collapse of population either by war or by famine or by pestilence 
or by some combination of those things. Now, Malthus was a Presbyterian minister, and he loved people, and he didn't want all the suffering that come with war, pestilence, and famine. And so what did he advise? That we needed to learn to control reproduction. We needed to learn to control population growth. And he advised this, well-meaning, right? He advised this, and millions of people all over the world bought into this within even just a few generations of Malthus. Now, interestingly enough, within just a few years, John Stuart Mill wrote a critique of Malthus's essay on population in which he pointed out that Malthus made a fundamental mistake. He didn't notice that because human beings create resources, there are no natural resources. There are raw materials, but there are no natural resources. No raw material is a resource until you figure out how to move it from where it is to where it isn't, transform it from the form in which you find it to some other form that's really usable, and then get that usable form into the hands of people who need to use it. And you have to do all kinds of fascinating things in order to do that. Until somebody figured out how to make oil into a productive resource, it was just a nuisance that bubbled out of the ground in some places and and was a real pain in the neck. Oklahoma's a little different from that now, isn't it? Right? Okay, so... um, John Stuart Mill pointed out Malthus overlooked that. And the reality is that resources can grow faster than population because human beings with the minds God has given us can mimic God and make more out of less. And in the third edition of his essay on population, Malthus admitted this. But nobody pays any attention to the third edition. And so the Malthusians today run most of the major global and American governmental and and Western European governmental organizations, and they believe in Malthusianism. That's why population control is so popular. It's why abortion has become so rampant, because that is a major way of population control. Uh, it's, it's why homosexuality, it's part of why, what has driven homosexuality. After all, what better way to not have kids than to have two men with each other and two women with each other? Now, it's kind of difficult to make kids that way, right? So uh, there's, there's this uh, Malthusianism. There are three fears, uh, two fears, two basic fears. Uh, the second one has a, a particular uh, variety today. The three fears, resource depletion, We're getting to be more and more of us, and so we're using up all the world's resources. We're depleting them, and eventually they'll run out, and that will ruin us. The second one is pollution. While we are using up all the world's resources, we're also polluting it to death. We're poisoning the planet, right? And this is the fear behind Malthusianism. Now, the reality, and I've discussed this in my book, Prospect, Prospects for Growth, a Biblical View of Population Resource in the Future, uh, which is available on the table back there, um, is that when a, when a society goes from subsistence agriculture to early industrialization, you do have a temporary rise in pollution. But the tremendous multiplication of productivity of food, clothing, shelter, Uh, medical care, education, transportation, everything else that benefits human physical well-being, the multiplication of those that comes from that early industrialization far outweighs the harms of the pollution to the people, which is why life expectancy rises. And that spurs a population growth spurt, right? Not because people are breeding like flies, pardon me, breeding like rabbits, but because they've stopped dying like flies. Life expectancy rises, and that's why population grows so fast for a short time. We call it the demographic transition. But shortly, as that society gets a little wealthier, people think, you know, I don't like all that smoke from the coal-fired plants. I don't like all the the, uh, smog from the cars and the highways and things like that. I don't like the trash strewn along the roads. I don't like the chemical pollutants in the streams. Not only do I not like them, but now I can afford to do something about them. I, can, I have money after feeding myself and my children and medicating and so on. I can afford to do something. So we adopt 
technologies that are more expensive than the basic ones, but that clean the place up. And so you get what's called the, the environmental Kuznets curve. That is, in early industrialization, pollution goes up, and then it peaks, and then it falls, and it goes below what it was before the industrialization. And I discussed that in uh, another of my books called uh, What is the Most Important Environmental Task Facing American Christians Today?, The answer to that is not what you would guess. It has nothing to do with environmentalism or science or anything else. It has everything to do with educating people about Scripture. But anyway, we have copies of that back there as well. Um, So now the, the, the most common... Oh, back to resource depletion very, very quickly. What's the, what is the best measure of scarcity? Economists will tell you it's price. Price measures scarcity. As something becomes more scarce, its price rises. As it becomes less scarce, its price falls. Scarcity is a relative measure. It's the measure of how much is brought to market at a such and such a price compared with how much is demanded at that price. Right? So scarcity is a relative measure. Now, if we look at the long-term inflation-adjusted price trend of every single extractive resource. Let me explain what an extractive resource is. That's something we take out of the earth. It can be minerals, it can be plants, it can be animals. So that's everything, all the resources that we use. The long-term price trend of every extractive resource is downward, rapidly downward, which means that all these resources are becoming less scarce, not more scarce over time which is absolutely counterintuitive. We've used billions and billions of barrels of oil since the U.S. Geological Survey in in, uh, 1895 told us that the United States would run out of oil in 1910. (laughs) And we have more known reserves of oil today than we had a decade ago and more then than two decades before that and more then than five decades before that. We keep making and coming up with more and more resources. There are all sorts of reasons to explain why this happens. Again, in Prospects for Growth, my book, I explain all of this. But that's what's happening. There is, however, one resource that is becoming more scarce over time. Anybody want to guess? Not my wife. She knows. (laughs) Pardon? No. Sorry, but no. (laughs) No. Come on, anybody want to guess? What resource is becoming more scarce over time, not less? People. As we've gone from about a billion people in the world around 1900 to about seven, maybe seven and a half billion people in the world today, we are more scarce than we were 120 years ago. How do we know that? The price of people is rising. Average wage adjusted for inflation is rising. Better measure than that, the average amount of bread and clothing and precious metals and cars and everything else that you can imagine that you can buy, the average amount of that that you can buy with the average hour that you work has been rising and rising and rising. Humans are more scarce over time. Everything else is less scarce over time. Why? Because humans make everything else. And the better we get at making more things, the higher our value goes. All right? So we are not running out of resources. Neither are we poisoning the planet to death. And neither are we causing uh, dreadful, catastrophic climate change. The problem with Malthusianism is that it sees people basically as consumers and polluters, but in fact we're producers and stewards. It also uh, sees economic growth as causing resource depletion and pollution, whereas it can do the exact opposite. People made in God's image can produce more resources than we consume, and we can make the world a cleaner and safer place. Here are three more resources that will help you to understand that. The first one, blue here, is a a DVD documentary done by a young man. It's brilliant. It is fabulous for teaching young people. Uh, And it stands, blue stands for beautify, liberate, utilize, enjoy. This is what we ought to be doing with the earth, not 
setting it all off into preserves into which people aren't allowed to go, right? Um, is capitalism bad for the environment? Is a booklet that I wrote refuting the most common arguments against capitalism from environmentalists. And Prospects for Growth, A Biblical View of Population Resources in the Future is a major book that I wrote back in 1990 answering all the population control arguments and things of that nature. So um, now, when we make more and more resources, we're mimicking God. God started off, right? What do we read in Genesis 1? In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. He started with what? Nothing. He got what? Everything, right? Not, not a bad profit margin, except that, of course, you can't do that in percent because there is no, you know, nothing is a percent of nothing, right? It was absolute profit, not percentage profit. He started with nothing, made everything. Then he brought light out of darkness, order out of chaos, life out of non-life, abundant life out of a little life, a great variety of life out of a small variety of life. God has done all of this. This is the way God has ruled his creation. His dominion is characterized this way. And then we read that God made Adam and Eve in his own image and after his likeness, and he gave us dominion over the earth. And he blessed us and he said to us, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that moves on the face of the earth, right? So this means we're supposed to have dominion over everything. Now, in 1967, a medieval historian by the name of Lynn White Jr. wrote an article called The Religious Roots of Our Ecological Crisis that was published in Science Magazine. It was after that republished in literally hundreds of anthologies that have been used in environmental science and environmental conservation courses in universities and colleges all over the world. It's probably the most widely read article on religion and environment in all of history. And in this, Lynn White argued, uh, and by the way, Francis Schaeffer wrote something of a response to this, in his book, Pollution and the Death of Man, back in, I think that came out in about 1974 or something like that. Uh, but Schaefer was, was pretty narrow in his, his address to it. White said that the degradation of the natural world around us, all the pollution problems that we were having, and there, there were real ones, there still are real ones, that all of this was attributable to Genesis 1.28 saying, that God said that man should have dominion over the earth. And he said that Jewish and Christian thinkers ever since had used that verse as a rationale for essentially raping and exploiting the planet, abusing it, not caring at all about how we use it. Now you can read all the rabbinic commentaries on Genesis 1.28, all the Christian commentaries on Genesis 1.28. You will never find any commentary arguing any such thing. So it was a total straw man argument. But it has become widespread in environmentalist thinking. Instead, if we look at our dominion as to be reflecting God's dominion, and God made everything of nothing, brought light out of darkness, order out of chaos, life out of non-life, variety of life, abundance of life, what should ours do? Well, we can't bring something out of nothing, but the better we get at bringing more and more out of less and less, the more we reflect God there, right? The more we bring order out of disorder, the more we reflect God there. The more we bring truth out of falsehood, the more we reflect God there. The more we, we enhance life, the better we reflect God's dominion. So at the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, we kind of summarize this way. Godly dominion means men and women made in God's image, laboring lovingly together to enhance the fruitfulness and the beauty and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and to the benefit of our neighbors so that really we're, we're fulfilling the two great commandments, to love God and to love neighbor. And you know, when I put it that way, I can't find anybody who objects to that idea. Right? That's, that's solid, but that's biblical, right? Now... Um, the big bugaboo today, of course, is climate change. You know, President, uh, President Biden told us that this is an existential threat. Think about what existential means. It threatens the very existence of something. Human civilization, American survival, the survival of life on the planet, you know, the survival of the planet itself, maybe. Existential threat. Uh, that's such hogwash. Uh, I mean, uh, honest to goodness, 
I, I read a lot that comes out from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the big United Nations organization that, that studies this all the time. And, and they've got lots and lots of scientists. And they are, I think, quite alarmist about this. They're far more catastrophist about it than I would be. But they never come anywhere near describing climate change as an existential threat. That's all from politicians, from environmental activists, from media folks. It's not from any of the scientists involved. All right? Now, um, so what they're doing is they're overstating what's called climate sensitivity. And that is the answer to the question, how much warmer will average surface, uh, global surface atmospheric temperature be if we double the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? That's the question. The answer, you can't know for sure without a whole lot of empirical study over a long period of time. We haven't had enough time of being able to do that sort of thing to have a, a really, really solid answer to it yet from empirical study. But we try to do it with computer models. And we're told, first of all, that after all, this is basic physics. You have what's called greenhouse gases. Those are, those are molecules that absorb infrared, which is heat, as it moves from the surface of the earth, comes in from the sun, hits the surface of the earth, bounces back as infrared, and some of these molecules absorb that, and then they re-radiate it spherically from themselves, which means that some heat that was headed out into space turns around and comes back to the surface of the earth. If we didn't have any greenhouse gases, the average temperature on the uh, surface of the earth would be, um, would be uh, zero degrees Fahrenheit. Because we do, uh, do have them, the average temperature on the earth is about 59 degrees Fahrenheit. We should be glad that we have some greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. The most important one, by the way, is called water vapor. That amounts for, uh, it varies because the amount of water vapor in the, in the atmosphere goes up and down over time. But generally anywhere from about 85 to 95% of the greenhouse effect is from water vapor. About 45 to 5% comes from carbon dioxide and the remainder comes from methane and ozone and a variety of other trace gases. But the question is, if we double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, how much warmer will average global surface temperature be? The computer models have been telling us since the Charney report in 1978 under President Carter, anywhere from about 1.5 to 4.5 degrees Celsius, increase in global average temperature. Now, the best empirical studies that we've been able to do since then, especially those that use satellites to measure global temperature, are telling us instead that the rate of warming in response to the increase of CO2 in the atmosphere so far figures out instead to anywhere from about 0.3 to about 1.5 or 1.75 degrees Celsius of warming in response to a doubling of CO2 in the atmosphere. By the way, we haven't doubled it. Before the Industrial Revolution, it was about 280 parts per million. Today, it's about 415 parts per million. We've raised it by about 48%. So it might reach double near the end of this century, but we're not there yet. So the best empirical evidence is that the warming rate is much lower than the computer models tell us. Now, there's a reason for that, and there are a whole bunch of different reasons for that. One of them is one that the UN IPCC itself stated in its third assessment report back in 2001, where it very clearly said that the climate system is a coupled, nonlinear, chaotic system, and it is therefore impossible to predict future global temperature. And yet we've been trying for now 50 years to do it by using computer models. Another reason is the computer models are hopelessly simplistic compared with the real climate system. The climate system is probably the most complex natural system we have ever studied with the exception of the human brain and DNA. We, we can't account for the vast majority of the different elements of the climate system in our computer models. We don't even know where a lot of them, whether a lot of the feedbacks are positive or negative, whether they enhance or subtract from initial warming or cooling. We don't know. So instead, we just plug in, we parameterize, we plug in figures to the computer models and we play around them, with them. That's ad hoc. That's called curve fitting. That's why the models are able to reasonably well fit the past temperature. It's because we already know the answer to that, so we can monkey around with all the numbers we need to to get the right answer from the model. 
What they can't do and have never done accurately is to predict future temperature. In fact, on average, the, uh, the models predict between two and four times as much warming as actually observed over the relevant period of time. So um, since they can't really prove this stuff by solid science, they appeal instead to consensus. Al Gore and uh, President Obama and all sorts of others have told us over and over again, 97% of all climate scientists agree. That was based on bogus studies, and I don't have time to tell you what they were or why they're bogus, but you can look them up on our website in an article by Neil Frank, a former director of the U.S. National Hurricane Center, on the, the problem of the false claim of the 97% consensus on global warming. Uh, but um, first of all, consensus is not a scientific value. Evidence and logic are scientific values. Consensus is a political value. Want to know who, ran, who won an election? You count votes. That's consensus. Want to know how much CO2 warms the atmosphere? You don't count scientists. You do good science. So it's not scientific at all. Um, so they also ignore climate history. They ignore the fact that the world has warmed and cooled and warmed and cooled over and over through its entire geological history. And that's true whether you're a young earth geologist or an old earth geologist. Either way, you find the patterns of warming and cooling. Long before anybody was driving an SUV. Right? So that means that we have no reason to think that the recent warming has been anything but another part of the cyclical warming and cooling that goes on all the time anyway. And besides that, God has promised us in Genesis 1.22 that as long as heaven and earth endure, seed time and harvest, summer and winter, cold and heat, day and night will not cease. That's Hebrew, uh, Hebrew poetic uh, merism is what it's called as a literary device. And in that literary device, you use opposite extremes to say, yeah, and everything else, Right? It's God's promise that he will keep all the cycles on which human life and all the rest of life on earth depend going. We have God's promise for that. All right. Um, how much time do I have left? What, uh, I don't have anything to show me what time. Uh, okay. All right. Um, I have to tell, the, tell you this or my wife will shoot me. And this is really, truly very, very important. And unfortunately, sometimes I forget it. We need to talk about the benefits of fossil fuels. People are blaming the use of fossil fuels for global warming. Now, first off, fossil fuels provide roughly 85% of all the energy used in the world. Now, energy is used to do everything we do, to make everything we need. Food, clothing, shelter, everything else requires energy. Um, uh, I won't back up. Um, so, fossil fuels provide all that, which basically means you can say fossil fuels provide every, 85% of everything that you depend on and even the things you don't depend on but just enjoy, right? So that's the, that's the obvious benefit of fossil fuels. But what about the non-obvious benefit? Well, if the global warming alarmists are right, Fossil fuel use has made the world somewhat warmer than it otherwise would have been at this time. Now, that's actually a very good thing. We came out of the little ice age that ran from about 1250 to 1850. And during that time, crop failures were common. Human life expectancy was shorter. Diseases were more common. People couldn't resist diseases so well because they weren't so well nourished. I mean, cold is a really bad thing. A cold snap kills 10 times as many people per day as a heat wave does. All right? So we came out of the Little Ice Age and fossil fuels probably for about the last 50 years or so have contributed something to that warming. Now, according to the greenhouse theory, the warming happens primarily toward the poles, not toward the equator, primarily in the winter, not, at the, not in the summer, primarily at night, not in the daytime. So in other words, cold temperatures rise while high temperatures stay pretty much the same. There has been no increase in the number of heat waves or anything else during the period of so-called man-made global warming. There has been an increase in, in high latitude and high altitude 
and winter and nighttime temperatures. All of those things are good because that lengthens the growing season. You can plant earlier in the spring. You can keep, keep things growing later in the fall. Things grow closer to the poles. They grow higher in the mountains. For every doubling of CO2 content in the atmosphere, you get an average 35% increase in plant growth efficiency. Plants grow better in warmer and cooler temperatures and in wetter and drier soils. They make better use of soil nutrients. They resist diseases and pests better. They improve their fruit to fiber ratio. And one of the results of that is that the whole world is showing greening. There has been a roughly 13% increase in the leaf coverage of global land over the last roughly 45 years. That's incredible. And it's all because we're adding CO2 to the atmosphere because plants use it in photosynthesis. You and I breathe in oxygen and breathe out CO2. And by the way, if CO2 is a pollutant, you're in trouble. Because the average CO2 content in the atmosphere is 415 parts per million right now, but when you exhale, it's, it's, it's 40,000 parts per million. So you are a terrible polluter, and you should stop breathing to protect the earth, right? Um, no, the reality is there would be no life on earth if there were no CO2 in the atmosphere. And the more we put there, the more plants grow, which may, means more food for everything that eats plants and everything that eats something that eats plants. Who benefits the most from that? The poor, for whom low, low costs of food are so important. So some resources on that, a bunch that we have at our table back here, um, three different DVD deals here, Where the Grass is Greener, uh, Climate Change and the Christian, a whole lecture on just that issue, uh, about an hour and 20 minutes that I did on that, and then Climate Gate. Uh, I'm sorry, Climate Hustle 2, uh, starring Kevin Sorbo, by the way. Uh, wonderful documentary. And then three books, uh, one of them Hot Talk, Cold Science by my friend, the late Dr. S. S. Fred Singer, one of the legendary climate scientists of all time, but two others by my other friend who's a Cornwall Alliance board member, Dr. Roy Spencer, who is uh, he's, he and his colleague at the University of Alabama uh, run NASA's Satellite Global Temperature Monitoring System. They're two of the top climate scientists in the world. Uh, an inconvenient deception how Al Gore uh, distorts climate science and energy policy. And then his book, Global Warming Skepticism for Busy People. All right, I have to stop because I actually reached the end. I'd be glad to field any questions that... Yes, sir. Sure, yeah. Yeah, the question is, can I explain how the sun influences global climate change? So the, the sun's energy output varies on several different cycles of different lengths. The most common one that people are familiar with is what's the, the sunspot cycle, and it runs roughly about 8 to 18 years. It averages about 11 years in cycle. And in terms of energy output from the sun, the difference is very, very slight. It's way less than half a percent. But, and, and that's too little to have an awful lot of impact on global temperature. But something else cycles right along with energy output from the sun, and that is solar magnetic wind. And solar magnetic wind modulates the influx of what are called cosmic, or galactic cosmic rays. Now, this is something that we've only begun to really understand in about the last 25 or 30 years, uh, but it's increasingly well supported by actual empirical experiments, right? Laboratory experiments. As galactic rays go through the atmosphere and they collide with various different molecules, they ionize them, and that allows those molecules to become nuclei for water vapor to condense and form clouds. Now, clouds are far and away the most important determinant of temperature around the earth. Low clouds cool the surface of the earth by reflecting a lot of sunlight back into space. High stratospheric clouds cool the surface of the earth by, I'm sorry, warm the surface of the earth by bouncing some 
infrared back toward the surface of the earth. Now, as, as solar magnetic wind increases, it diminishes the number of cosmic rays that enter the earth's atmosphere. And that means that you have less cloud formation. So you have more energy from the sun reaching the surface, which means you have a warmer surface. As solar magnetic wind decreases, you have more galactic cosmic rays coming in. That means you form more clouds, more lower, low-level clouds, and so therefore you're going to cool the surface. So that's one of the cycles on which the sun, the sun does influence. And there's very good empirical evidence that the correlation between solar cycles and global temperature is much, much stronger than the correlation between atmospheric CO2 and global temperature. And in fact, by the way, <laughs> there is a correlation between atmospheric CO2 and global temperature. But when you look at it really carefully, you discover that temperature changes before CO2 changes. So it's not CO2 driving temperature, it's temperature driving CO2. And that's because as ocean water warms, it outgasses CO2, and as it cools, it absorbs CO2. So anyway, that takes away the idea that CO2 is driving global temperature. Okay? Okay.